We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, take a look with me at the 12th chapter of uh, the Gospel of Mark. And this text goes from uh, verse 28 on, and it's a very interesting text. Four people have come in hostility to Jesus, priests, Herodians, Sadducees, Pharisees, and now there comes a guy that is a genuine seeker. He's not coming to catch Christ in thorny ideas, the prickly ideas of law. He's not coming to discredit him. He's come, in verse 28, because he heard that Jesus answered them well. And so, listen now, this happens quite often. The words of Christ that insulted many are the aroma of life to others. Is that still true? The Apostle Paul said, we are an aroma of Christ unto God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we're an aroma of life unto life. To the other, we're the aroma of death unto death. That's why the fellow said whenever Jesus was dedicated in the temple at eight days, Simeon said this child is, depart, is, uh, is given for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. Some will embrace him and go to heaven. Some will renounce him and perish. But there's no middle ground on this man. First Corinthians, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. Acts 17, and when they heard of the resurrection, some mocked Paul, and some said, we'll hear of you again concerning this. And some believed, among whom was Dionysius, the Areopagite. He was on the philosophic council. And so whenever you preach the word, whether it's you, whether it's Christ, there are cockroaches and there are moths. And whenever you turn on the light, the moths come the cockroaches scatter. All right. Well, this is a moth right here. And here he comes in verse 28. It's not a group of men, but one of the scribes. A scribe is a Pharisee who deals with law. He's a scholar's scholar. Uh, there were 613 laws in the Old Testament. Some thou shalt not, some thou shalt the guys that did case law and looked at how they were interpreted and how they interacted were called lawyers. And whenever you had a, a question concerning justice within the civil nation of Israel, these were the guys that you came to. They were the experts. Not just experts on the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition about the law that when it was written down became the Talmud. You ever heard of the Talmud? Well, it's the recording of oral tradition. There's five books of law. They're like this in your Bible. Uh, the oral tradition is 16 English volumes. It'll fill the bottom of your shelf. These guys were scholars, scholars. And one of them heard Jesus, and in verse 28, he answered well. He is not coming to justify his ideas. He wants to know 
and verse 28, the greatest command. It was felt among the Jews that there was one singular law that was like the uh, center post on a circus tent that held it up. And if you did that, that all the other laws were attendant. Rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the law, keep these. These I've kept from my youth. What do I lack? I need to know what's the one thing I have to do. John chapter 8, what must we do to work the works of God? To do what God accepts. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. And so they wanted to know what's the greatest of commandments. He doesn't ask a question about prickly ideas of the resurrection or paying to Caesar. He wants to know about salvation. How can I be assured that I am saved? Now understand, this is a guy that had forgotten more than anybody else knew. But without Christ, he wasn't sure about himself. Is that still true? You can be smart as you are, but somebody had better give you the assurance that when I die, that you'll take me. And so he says, what's, what's the one thing you have to do? Well, Christ answers him. And he says to him in verse 29, the Shema Israel. The word Shema in Hebrew, S-H-E-M-A, means here. H-E-A-R, here. And so, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's called the Shema. Every pious Jew memorized it. They had it in their phylacteries, the box they would wear on their head and on their arm that had verses in them. Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema was a silver miniature scroll that you put inside your phylactery. They, you ever see when a, on a Jewish house, there's a little something that's right there on the door facing called the mezuzah, and you touch it when you go in. Uh, what was contained inside of that was usually Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one. At every uh, synagogue service, you began it with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you will love him, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so Jesus responds to him with the Shema in verse 29 through verse 30. There is no verse that is the heart of biblical theology than that verse, Old or New Testament. He says, hear, O Israel. He's speaking not simply to men, but the covenant nation who alone has the law of God. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God. He is not simply God. He is our God. This is the God who is called, in verse 29, one Lord. Whenever your English Bible uses the word Lord, it is signifying the Old Testament term, Yahweh, the infinite God. That is his name, is Yahweh. I am, not I was, not I will be. I am eternally perfect and I'm never going to need any smarter. I'm never going to be more powerful. I'm never going to be omnipresent. I'm not becoming. I am. Okay? You remember in the Gospel of John, there's a man who says seven times, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am. Who's the man? Jesus, who claimed to be God. And so when he says, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. This is the God of the Bible. 
This is the God who had made himself known in truth and in history to the nation of Israel. They all had their origin from the womb of a 100-year-old woman. Every Jew is a miracle. Uh, they have their origin as a nation as a miracle. God took them like a baby out of Egypt with birth pangs, and they didn't fire a shot. It was the Exodus. They went through the wilderness journey. I gave them food. I gave them water. I gave them fire to guide them by day and a cloud by night. I defeated their enemies. I took them through. I took them into the land. The Joshua, they fought 31 battles. They were 31 and 0. I took care of them. Uh, when the enemy attacked afterwards in the time of judges, I would raise up a judge. I would raise up a king. They would wander. I would send the prophets. They got sent into slavery. I would promise to bring them back, and I did. He delivered them from the Persians. He delivered them from the Maccabean days from the Greeks, and he delivered them uh, uh, and had them rebuild their temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Isn't that amazing? And so when he says, Hear, O Israel, my people, I am God, I am Yahweh. And he says, uh, the Lord our God is one. There is no other God. What's the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make an image of me. You will not confine me to what you think I am. I am the God that is known by the still, small voice, by the wind of my word. That's the only way you'll know me. And so this is God who is one, and thus you are to love him with all of your heart. A God to be loved, because when you see what Yahweh has done with his covenant people as revealed in the Bible, you can only love him. He gave us life. He gave us a nation. He gave us the land. He gave us deliverance. He gave us the law. He crossed the Jordan. He brought us into the land. He victored. He gave us judges. So what should you do? Respond rationally. You love him. I've asked people before that didn't want to become Christians and were vilifying it. What is there about Jesus you don't like? Do you not like the fact that he was the eternal God and gave it all up and came to earth and laid aside his power? In the, in the womb of a woman for you? Does it bother you that he is the word made flesh? Does it bother you that he lived the life you couldn't live and he died tortured on the cross for what you did? Do you really? I can understand why you'd hate that. Do you really understand and have a problem with the fact that by belief in him, he can declare you righteous and secure you for heaven, give you new life, put the law in your heart, raise you from the dead, to live with him forever. What part of that is really problematic to you? We love the Lord because it is, like Paul said, our reasonable service of worship. Amen? It's what sane people do to an infinite personal God. And as a result that he is one, how much of your heart does he get? All of it. There's nobody to divide time with. It's not God and Baal and God and Chemosh and God and Milcom and God and Molech. It is God. And so he gets my heart, my emotions and my motive. He gets my soul, my conscience and my will. He gets my mind, my intellect and how I interpret reality. 
He gets my strength and how I serve him. A good picture of this is Romans 12, 1 and 2. That is the Shema of the New Testament. I urge you, therefore, brethren, because of the mercies of God. Here's your motive. He loves you. That you present to him your bodies as a living sacrifice. How much is given when something is sacrificed? Everything. Now, of course, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. Okay. So you've got to stay up there. A living holy sacrifice, and then it says that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect, biblical, by the, by the transforming and the renewing of your mind. He wants your body, he wants your heart, he wants your soul, he wants your mind, all of him. And it says this is your reasonable service of worship. This is what normal people do when they know about the mercies of God is they give themselves to this God. Having been enslaved and now released, I will serve you forever. And so Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the New Testament Shema, Israel. And so we are to love him supremely. Incidentally, this is an amazing truth. This God is what is the theological term is complacent. He doesn't need anything. He is self-content and satisfied. There's nowhere he isn't. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing he can't do. He is infinite. Are you with me? Is this infinite God, however, personal? Does he love you? Yes. The other night we had a, a... a retreat with our young guns and the gap kids. And I had all the young guns, the guys 22 and older, share their testimony with the 18-year-olds. And uh, every one of them would talk about going through life at a certain point and God intersecting them. They wouldn't talk about God saving their country or God giving truth to their denomination or God to their family that God dealt with them. What's the one thing in the Bible God has never called? A grandfather. He will not deal with you as a grandparent. He is the God not of Abraham and his kids, but he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of them he has to deal with. That's why if you're a parent raising a kid, God has got to beat him just like he did you. Okay. He's got to deal with that kid. And every one of these guys would talk about how God intersected them and their little dorm room, how he dealt with them and converted them. That's why the Christian is the one religion that everybody has an individual testimony. You're never born a Christian. You're born again when God strikes you dead and raises you up. And so they were just amazed at how this great God would become so small through Christ to touch their lives. Albert Einstein believed that God did not plague dice with the universe. He had a belief in an infinite God. What he couldn't deal with, however, was Orthodox Judaism and Christianity because it didn't merely speak of an infinite God, but of a God who would love humans. And Einstein could not get his mind around that, that God cared about you. Uh, 
There was once a Baptist pastor that starts churches, and he came and he sat down with me and he said, I wanted to visit with you because I owe my salvation to Denton Bible. I said, my preaching? No, not you. Okay. So I said, what happened? He said, I came to a church service when you were over in the big, long green building over there. And he said, I came in just a typical rogue single guy. And I came in and sat down. I figured I might as well go back to my roots that we used to believe in, in God. And he said, I came in and he said, I knew all the hymns. I'd been raised in Protestantism. I knew it. I just wasn't doing it. And he said, I sat there and y'all sang a song. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not as thou hast been. Thou forever shalt be. And he said, it wasn't just the words. He said, there was a guy sitting about three feet away from me that was singing. And he said, this wasn't no, you know, little bitty fellow. This was a big, burly transmission repairman or something, or a heating air conditioning guy, or something like that. He was a big, thick guy. And he had his pullover on. He had some boots on. And he said, this guy was singing from the depths of his soul. He said his eyes were closed. And he, could say, he said, I could see sometimes tears would come to his eyes. And he was singing, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. And he said it would choke him up. And he said, I just turned and stared at him and wanted to know what made him. What was he seeing? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, the God who has acted for his people and revealed himself, what the Bible calls the living God, the real deal. And he just said, this guy loved God. He said, I introduced myself. And I said, why are you like this? And he said, he told me, this is what I was. God intersected me. This is what I've become. Isn't that good? And that's what Jesus is saying. This is the great commandment. God actually desires the pleasure of obedient people who love him. Amazing. You know, I've got in my office a metal little piece of sign and it says, Tom Conway Bible Class. Because when I was little, my, we would go to church twice a year, always faithful. Okay. We would go to church, and we would sit in our pew. Did y'all grow up in your own pew? Yeah, we had a pew. And right to my left, there was a guy, and I would watch him whenever we would go there. His name was Tom Conway. He was 80 plus. He would, he would have been born in like the 1870s by the time I was a kid. And he was a lawyer. And my mother used to always say to us, that's Tom Conway. He's a great man. And I'd go, really? And I'd watch him. And we had a Tom Conway Bible class at 
Herring Avenue Methodist Church. And on the metal sign that said Herring Avenue Methodist Church, down underneath it, there was a little metal sign that would blow back and forth that said Tom Conway Bible Church in the rear. So if you went to his men's Bible study, which was packed out to listen to Tom Conway, then you would go in the rear and go in. His wife was called Jewel, that women were named back then, okay? J-U-E-L-L, she would teach a women's Bible study. And so I grew up with that son, watching it and that man, and I would watch him. He had emphysema or something, and he had this terrible cough, and he would cough with his handkerchief, and he would read the Apostles' Creed with gusto. I believe he'd have his eyes closed, and I'd watch him. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And he would say that. And then he would sing the hymns with all of his heart. And he would do the responsive readings with all of his heart. And I just watched him all the way till the end of the service. That's how you knew you could go home. The service lasted 12 weeks <laughs> in our church. But at the end of the service, we would sing, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. And I knew that was time to go home. And I would look at Tom Conway, and he would sing it from the depths of his soul. And I never forgot that, that there was a guy that deeply loved God, and I couldn't figure it out, but I watched him. And whenever I got converted, I thought, Tom Conway. Tom Conway was converted. That being said, I went one time to Saltgrass in Louisville, the steakhouse. You with me, David? Salt grass. And I was sitting there eating, and I looked, you know how salt grass, like, oh, chilies and where's the, where the old men sit out front and eat breakfast? Cracker barrel, yeah. They decorate with junk, you know. <laughs> You've seen it all the way. And those, those restaurants have buyers that will go out and buy this stuff wherever they can. They put it up retro, I believe they call it. And I was eating there, and I looked over. I saw, huh, Tom Conway Bible Church, a Bible class in the rear. And I thought, that's good that, that Saltgrass has a Bible study here. It didn't hit me. And I went there the next time. I looked up and saw the same thing. And I remember just thinking, it's interesting that, that whoa, Tom Conway See, that church I went to had folded up. Everybody died, okay. And they took everything that said Herring Avenue Methodist Church and they sold it to somebody else and they took Herring Avenue and put it out on the curb. And some buyer from Saltgrass found it and bought it. And they decorated the inside of the Louisville Saltgrass with that. And here I was, 60 years later, looking at it. Wow, that's Tom Conway. And the manager of the restaurant came walking through, and I said, hey, hey, that sign right there, that sign means nothing to you. That sign, when I was a kid, was the North Star, Tom Conway. And I said, I'll pay anything you want. I'm a real haggler, okay? <laughs> I'll pay whatever you want for that sign, and he said, well, I don't know. We, we've never sold a decor. <laughs> he said, I'll have to check. And so I left. Well, I told that story in the church service years ago, years ago. And uh, that Sunday, 
about four couples went down to Saltgrass and told the manager they were going to burn down the, the restaurant. Okay. Like Don Corleone, you know. I need your son. And at the evening service, they presented it to me. And so in my study, uh, I have on the wall, Tom Conway Bible class meets in the rear. And when I go out to preach, I'll jump up and hit it like the Notre Dame players do, you know, play like a champ today. Because I think that's the guy that set my course, that there's something greater than just these words. Is it a good lesson to know that somebody might be watching you? He had no idea there was an 11-year-old kid watching everything he did, and he was an aroma of Christ to me. And so that's what Christ wants. I want that kind of heart. We had a guy that was an elder in our church named Chuck, Chuck Mork. And whenever we would sing, uh, what was the song? And when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. My Savior God to thee, then sings my song. And we would sing that, and I would always look at Chuck. He was a three-miler when I was a quarterback in North Texas. And he was one of our elders, and I would look at him because he could never make it through that song. And when he got to the point, and when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent, and that was all he could get. And then he would choke up, and I would laugh at him. Okay, that's what guys do, all right? And so, are you with me so far? What's the greatest commandment? There it is. You love God, and don't worry about the rest. You'll do them. And in verse 31, what goes with it is love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you really love God and want to please him, you'll do what he says. And that concerns loving your neighbor. Ten commandments, all right? The first four are about God. The next six are about men. Which do you want? You got to have them both. With your mouth, you bless our Lord and Father. And with your mouth, you curse men made in the image of God, James. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. And so, we love God, and we love his creation. Uh, incidentally, if you do that, you just fix the world. You dig? You just fix the world. You love God, you love his creation, we're home. Uh, and Jesus said, there is no greater commandment than these. Does that remind you all of a verse? These three abide, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That's where Paul got that, is right here. There is nothing greater than this. Why? Faith and hope take. God has provided truth. I take it. God has provided hope, the second coming and eternity. I take it. Love gives. Love is a binding of all the attributes of God and all of the commands. The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement. You'll love your neighbors yourself. John, God is 
love. It's an attribute of God. And so Jesus says, this is the essence of who God is. And the creation, after each day, God says, it is good. Good for who? God didn't need gravity or firmament to breathe or animals or plants to eat. We need them. And so he would make it for us, the crib for the baby, and say, that's good. The baby will like that. Isn't that something? That's why Sigmund Freud, one of the great prophets, <laughs> don't email me. Sigmund Freud, who was an atheist and hated religion, he said that all God was was a human being's infantile longing for a true father. And what he would do is he would impart to nature his wish fulfillment of, I wish I had a daddy like that. Poor Sigmund. He was partially right. It's just we didn't impart it. We enjoyed it. And he is. He's called the mighty eternal father. And so, this guy in verse 32, here's Christ. Now, 28, Jesus answered well, and the scribe asked him the question. In verse 32, the scribe said, right, amen. Everybody else argued with him. The scribe said, amen. You have truly stated, right, true, that there is no one else beside him. That's true. Jesus, you got your theology dead on. And our morality to respond, to love him with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And our neighbor is, is better than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Question, where is the guy saying this at? The temple. And he is the top dog among the scholars. And he just looks around. He said, all of this stuff is useless if there's not the substance to the symbols of an animal given to God, the symbol of a human totally devoted. And he says, right, you're there. You're dead on. And as a matter of fact, he says, it's much more than all burnt offerings. It's almost like he says, if we could all get to where we could love God and love each other, we could let go of the old covenant and be in a new covenant. He could have said that. Uh, listen to this. David, Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering thou hast not required, but a body you've prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and in sacrifices for sins, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me that this is my KP duty. This is my requirement. And the scroll of the book, the law, it's written of me. I come to do thy will, O God. David said, all of that sacrifice is just a symbol. What God wants is a yielded body, not of an animal, but of a human. And he said, God, the reason I come is that in your word, that's the light of my feet. It's written of me. Do y'all happen to know of another Davidic king who said at the point of death, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus, the ultimate Davidic king. 
And so this lawyer grasped it for just a second. He grasped it. You know, it's interesting. Paul said, to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. They can't see it. But when a man turns to Christ, the veil's taken away. All of a sudden, you can see the Old Testament. It makes sense. This guy looks at Jesus. He gets an answer. And the Old Testament clicks. The Shema clicks. The ceremonies in the temple click because he sees Christ. How many of you had the experience of coming to know Christ, opening your Old Testament, and it started making sense? When a man turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. Well, in verse 34, Jesus saw that he had answered, what's your Bible have? Intelligently. Now watch this. Seeing that he had answered well, he said this. And then he said, right, true. This is the way it is. And Jesus said, amen. It's like, you ever seen the uh, Michelangelo, God and Adam with that little separation? Well, it's like this guy says, intelligent, right. And Jesus says, amen. And they touch. The communique has been reached, the reconciliation. Jesus saw the word nous echo means to have a mind. Jesus said, you've got your head screwed on. This living Bible. You got your head on, son. It just clicked to you. That's it. And then he said to him in verse 34, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Why does he say you're not far? You're not quite there yet. Watch this. True faith in what is called soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, demands four things. You have to hear a message because salvation doesn't come from within you, right? It's something God did. So you've got to hear a good message, a gospel. So you hear a body of truth, the gospel, and you understand it. You understand it. He's the son of God, the object of scripture, and he came to do what? To die. Why? He had to die for you to satisfy the attributes of God. Oh, that's it. That's it. So you have to have knowledge and then you have to understand. And then thirdly, you have to say that's true. You've got to say, right, teacher, right. You've got to have what's called assent, knowledge, uh, understanding, and assent. This is what saved me when in my room, a guy shared the gospel with my roommate, said to my roommate, are you a Christian? He said, yes. He said, what's a Christian? Somebody that keeps the Ten Commandments. You keep them? Silence. He said, no, the Ten Commandments weren't given for us to keep, but to show us we couldn't keep them. And that's why we needed Jesus to die. And when he said that, that was something I'd never heard, and I understood it. And I said, amen. I said, if that's not true, it ought to be. That's the best thing I've ever heard. Was I a Christian? No. No because it demands one more thing. 
you got to trust him. You got to trust him. There was a French aerial walker once. I believe his name was Blondine. And he would do great feats of walking on high wires. And on one occasion, I think he was at Niagara Falls. And he was going to walk across the falls. And he did it. And the crowd cheered. And he got back and he said, how many of you believe I can do it and push a wheelbarrow across? Go Blonde, go Blonde. He said, who would like to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> That's faith. Okay. And so you have knowledge, you have understanding, you have assent. But now it has to get personal. Knowledge, understanding, and assent is okay. But the lightning's got to strike you. You got to do it. Your mom and daddy can't do it for you. You got to do it. And that's what hit me. When I heard that guy say that, I said, someday I need to do that. But I didn't do it for a while because I understood that if he is the eternal son of God and he can, by the Holy Spirit, come into my life, he's not going to want to sit in the front seat. He wants to sit at the steering wheel. And I understood that. And that was hard for me to turn my life over to Christ, being so successful, being pulled in the second half against the Akron Zips. And so I didn't know if I wanted to do that, but it did. And that's what faith is. And no man can do that unless God summons him. We're set against it. Well, Jesus says, you're not far. You have one more thing to decide. And that's not simply the truth that you've heard. You got to make a decision on who told you this. I am or I am not the son of God. And you got to make that call. You're close. And we're left with the text. And you know what's interesting at the end in verse 34? No one would ask him any more questions. You know why? Because they thought this guy's going to turn you into one of them. He'll knock you off. He'll make you a disciple if you keep listening. Get away from him. Well, uh, good story here. It used to be I could remember my stories. Oh, yeah. Billy Graham. What was the name of his magazine? Decision. Decision. What was the name of his radio show? The Hour of Decision. You got to make the call. What are you going to do? To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. You got to make the call. What did Elijah say? How long will you hop between two forks? If the Lord is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Make the call. We had a girl at our church years ago. She was a 60s kid. And she was going to North Texas, and she drove a blue, like, 64 Mustang. You could always tell where she was in town. And she was giving her testimony, and she said, I'd come to believe in Jesus, hypothetically, when I was a little Presbyterian kid at a Presbyterian camp, but I'd wandered far. And she said, on my Mustang, I had on the bumper, bumper stickers, and one would say, Jesus is the reason for the season. In case of rapture, this car will be unoccupied. And then on the other side would be uppity women of the world unite. 
and feminism and stuff. And uh, salvation through Greenpeace and stuff like this. And so she had two kind of bumper stickers, two sides here. And she said, that was my life. She said, one day I went into Vertman's. Y'all remember Vertman's down on the square? She went to Vertman's college bookstore and I parked my car there and went in. And when I came out, she said, there was a slip of paper that was underneath my windshield. And she said, people knew my car and I thought somebody would say, I'll meet you over at Mr. Chopsticks for lunch or something. And she took the paper out and there was one word on it. And she said, that word led me to salvation. I said, what was the word? The word was decide. She said, for all I know, it could have been written by an angel. But she said, I more think that it was some Christian that walked by and looked at my bumper sticker and said, that's a dang shame. Make the call. Y'all ever heard of Peter Marshall, the great Presbyterian pastor back in the 40s in, in D.C.? He preached a sermon once. How long will you hop between two forks if the Lord is God's servant and if Baal is God, serve him? And he was a Scotsman. And when you're Scottish, you just sound holy. All right. And I heard a reel-to-reel -reel on him. Y'all remember this? A reel-to-reel -reel tape. And he said, if the Lord is God, serve him. And if Baal is God, serve him and go to hell. <laughs> People think I'm crass. Make the call. One time I was witnessing to a guy, I'll never forget this. And he was convinced. I said, you want to trust Christ? No, I don't think I do. Okay, I tell you what, let's pray this. You pray after me. God, I hate you. Satan, I love you. And if you're going to be in the lake of fire, I want to be there too. Amen. He didn't pray. Make the call. Okay. Father in heaven, we see these encounters, these close encounters of Jesus. And uh, he, hit, he took on all comers. And then he answered this of a seeker. You're close. You're close. God wants more from you than just religion. And God wants more from you than just lip service. He wants you to love him. And he wants you to love his fellow man. And you've got to believe who it is that says this. Because you're the one that can give us the grace to be that. I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And I will sup with him. And he with me. We will know each other as friends. Even though I am the God of the cosmos, I know my sheep by name. Thank you. What a God you are. Amen.